now, a story about Australia punching above its weight, as Paul Keating used to say, in terms of our ability to influence our great and powerful friend, the US. As we prepare for the federal election campaign to formally start, possibly by tomorrow, there is one element of our electoral system that has a profound impact on the way politicians interact with us and which we take for granted. Because all eligible Australian citizens have a legal obligation to participate in the electoral process. Therefore, it means politicians can ill afford to ignore any voter. Now, our system of compulsory voting and all that is implied in that statement have been singled out by two American academics who are arguing that it is time for the US to embrace what they dub universal voting as opposed to compulsory voting, to avoid further damaging claims of electoral fraud and the rioting on the capital that followed the disputed 2020 presidential elections. In a new book, 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting, co-authors Mike Rappaport and EJ Dion explore what would change in the US if every citizen played a part in shaping their democracy. Now, Mike Rappaport has actually been a senior state politician and EJ Dion is well known to ABCRN listeners. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, but also a regular commentator on Breakfast and Us. Uh, Also joining us is Rosalind Dixon, a professor of law and director of the Gilbert and Tobin Centre of Public Law at UNS. W in Sydney, also a visiting professor at Harvard Law School. So welcome to you both. It's so good to be with you, Geraldine. Good to hear your voice. Yes, indeed. And yours, EJ. Look, what is the state of play in the United States? I noticed somebody, Bruce Walby, who comments quite a bit, said voter suppression is big business in the United States, sadly. What average, what proportion on average of the eligible voter population gets out to vote on polling day? Well, in our 2020 election, which was the highest turnout in a century, and in some ways you can argue, given that the electorate was uh, expanded the highest turnout ever, it was around two-thirds. It was just over 67%, uh, 67.7%. In um, the uh, midterm elections of 2018, we also had what was for us an exceptional turnout, but it was only 50% of eligible voters. And Australia uh, does two things, by the way, that are particularly important, not just that you have compulsory attendance at the polls, but that you also have a very good system of getting voters uh, registered. So you have turnouts of around 90% of of the 96% who are registered in your country. And so my friend Miles Rappaport and I have been in a kind of we love Australia tour, uh, (laughs) making the case for Australia's system. Uh, I will I'll stop by summarizing in the words of a very popular uh, detective in a detective series, Harry Bosch. He has a personal slogan. Everybody counts or nobody counts. And we think Australia does a better job of living up to that slogan uh, than most other democratic countries in the world. Yes, look, it's a very interesting... We have reported on this. I mean, the combination of the Australian Electoral Commission, preferential voting, loads of voting booths everywhere and absentee voting, it it all comes together in this... Exactly uh, right. mm, ...festival of democracy, as we call it. I had a research assistant helping us on this book And she ran into my office one day and said, do you see all the cool things Australia does to make it easier for people to vote? And it is just fantastic. And that we have had 
in recent uh, years, uh, voter suppression. We actually expanded access to the ballot in 2020. It was a great thing we did in the middle of a pandemic uh, to make it easier to vote. Uh, You have, according to the Brennan Center, 25 states that are expanding options further, which is a good thing, but 19 states that are trying to roll them back. So in addition to the voter suppression problem, we really are becoming two nations uh, when it comes to voting. It depends very much on what state you live in. Well, does it marginalise? Does this system marginalise some groups? Who's voting and who isn't, in other words? Yeah, what our research suggests and the research of many others is Young people are particularly underrepresented in this, uh, in our system. Uh, lower income people are underrepresented in the system. Uh, and uh, this, the fact that we do not have voting as a civic duty um, allows states to set up barriers that tend to discriminate against racial and ethnic uh, minorities as well as young people. Um, and so we want a system in which everyone is uh, at the polls and deciding uh, which way they want their democracy to go. And Australia, um, you know, you could, I guess I, I feel like I'm working for the political chamber of commerce but, <laughs> uh, uh, down there. But, uh, you know, Australia really provides a very good model. So, by the way, does Uruguay and a number of other countries who do this well. Yes, you talk about it, and then I'll move to Rosalind in a moment. You talk about enjoyable voting. This is something that you you really stress this idea because obviously you've got to like this is you're starting a process. It's 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 going to be an extremely hard argument to push, isn't it, in the US? But this whole idea that voting can be something approaching fun is another oh. aspect of it. Right. And by the way, there, we cited academic study that shows that parties associated with Election Day increase turnout, uh, can, can increase turnout quite substantially. We have taught as many Americans as we could about democracy uh, sausages. Uh, and uh, I, I have said the other day at a talk that the only bad thing about this system is if it worked really well, Americans might gain five pounds on election day. Um, we also point out that uh, uh, we should certainly offer vegan alternatives to democracy sausages. But um, a voter in Australia told a reporter for the New York Times uh, a couple of, uh, in 2018, I think, um, in, in Australia, democ- elections are like a party, and we think that's how it should be, not long, long lines where people have to wait, dreary lines where people have to wait six hours to vote. And that's the other thing we underscore about your system is the not only the fact that it's made easy to vote in other ways, but that you have an awful lot of polling places a lot in schools everywhere because you vote on Saturday. Mm. Um, and that's a very helpful thing. Rosalind, have we perfected the voting system? I mean, are there any jagged edges that you'd note? You're being a specialist in this, given that we'll probably have the election announced tomorrow. Jorian, I, I think EJ's right that Australia's got this as close to to perfect as possible, although there are always risks on the horizon. And I think some recent proposals have been, you know, floated that do put things at risk. I, just, I think, you know, it's what, been what, described... What, just, just quickly touch on those, please. Well, there's been a suggestion that we might need to have more voter ID and other kind of checks, which I think are about, um, you know, imposing 
barriers and, and moving backwards from where we are at the moment. So I think we really do have an excellent system and it's great to see, you know, American um, public intellectuals and scholars picking up on that. But I, I think as we domestically celebrate what is a terrific system, we need to realise that it's it's always up for grabs and we need to keep fighting for it and that attempts to impose barriers on access to the vote are, you know, real and they come up from time to time. So we should be vigilant about protecting what's good about our current system. That's not really going anywhere, that proposal, is it? It's sort of surfaced and uh, uh, it, I, I think it's it's really been laid aside, hasn't it? I, I hope so. And, you know, part of it is that when because it Because it was Aboriginal up, people in particular who couldn't necessarily present uh, the um, uh, documentation uh, that might be required. Correct. But I think a lot of us did actually work really hard to point that out to the government to make people aware of the risks. And I think it was shelved in part for that reason. But I, I always think when we talk about models, we have to be um, appreciate how much they depend on keeping fighting for them. They're not there to be taken for granted. They're, they're models that are, um, you know, as much the product of fighting for the values they underpin as the formal models themselves. Geraldine, if I may, I, I think one thing that's interesting about how EJ presents it is I don't think elections in Australia are purely about parties. I do think there's a sense in, of obligation that underpins our system, a social obligation, and that part of the sausages and the Saturdays is making fulfilling your civic duty feasible and painless, not about making it necessarily fun, but making it um, feasible. Take the kids, give them a sausage, go in and vote. And so I, I agree very much that there is a festive aspect, but most important, there's a sense of civic duty and a recognition that if you're going to make people do things, you've got to make it feasible for them. And let's just step back in time a moment. What pushed the proposal here for compulsory voting back in 1924? Well, the 20s obviously was a period of, of progressive change all around the world and here there was a, a sense that our voter turnout was too low and so it was a response to um, low levels of voting of, of the kind that the US and other countries are currently grappling with. So in a sense, 1924... Um, it was a very uh, spooky parallel to what the US is going to face in 2024 uh, and it was just low voter turnout and what that does to democracy. Uh, what? Could I come in yeah. for a sec? Uh, just on two points. One, uh, first on the parties, I totally agree about the civic duty sense of voting and one of the arguments we are making here um, is that uh, universal voting or compulsory attendance at the polls uh, changes the civic culture. It bends all institutions toward the idea of participation. And it means that over time, voters brought into the system do take their civic duty uh, very seriously. We quote Ralph Nader, the American consumer uh, leader, uh, as uh, saying, talking to a cab driver and saying, do you like this system of having to vote? And the cab driver said to Ralph Nader, sir, it is a civic duty, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, in, in terms of the origins, there is some scholarship that suggests it was the conservative parties who were worried about the rising trade union movement and that labor would out-organize the conservatives. Uh, and labor looked at the conservative proposal and said, we think we can do just fine under this system, so that you had a kind of bipartisan agreement in the end that Australia should go in this direction. And one of the things we're trying to encourage, and it will be awfully hard uh, in this context, in the American context right now, uh, is that both parties should want a system that includes everyone. Well, quite. I mean, it, it's in a way, uh, it's staggering um, to 
consider as we, I think, focused on the American system that so the, the, the amount of effort to actually prevent people of colour from necessarily assuming they had a right to vote. I mean, we, you know, we can all, I think loads of people became very adept at understanding all the issues involved. So is this sort of really coming home to roost in people's minds, uh, EJ, in the wake of Black Lives Matter and so on and so forth, that there has been this long-standing sense of um, not encouraging certain groups to vote and, you know, possibly doing quite a lot more than that. Well, before the Civil War, of course, most black Americans, not all, but most black Americans uh, were slaves. After the Civil War, they were enfranchised in the Reconstruction period. And then there was a vicious backlash and an often violent backlash. And by the 1880s and 1890s, the right to vote from black Americans living in the South had been taken away, wasn't restored until the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965. So we have a long history of denying the right to vote to black Americans and other groups in America, native groups were denied until there were changes in federal law um, over the last 30, 40 years. So now we opened up the system uh, and some of this pushback really is like the backlash against uh, the Reconstruction era enfranchisement. And uh, you know, it's not as bad. It's not as extreme. Sort of but a, a semi-new Jim Crow era. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of neo Jim Crow effort in some of our states. And you know, in my view, our view, that my co-author and I, Miles Rapport, and I think that we really have to push back against that. And we think the ultimate way to do that is by adopting a version of the Australian mm. system. Look, one of the things that's really quite powerful from your work is how um, the Australian system encourages a focus on the centrist voter so that every voter matters. And Miles Rappaport has an amazing story in your book, uh, EJ, where he, he remembers when he was standing, I think, in Connecticut and he was walking down the street and, you know, there's a whole lot of people sitting around and his advisor said to him, don't bother about them, they're not registered. <laughs> and right, uh, and so he didn't. So he walked past them. Now, you see, that that is, honestly, that is hard to be- hard to believe in Australia. Well, I always say whenever Miles tells that story, knowing Miles, I don't believe it. I think he talked to them anyway, but his aides pulled him away and said, you're wasting your time. Uh, The way I have cast this is we Americans have made uh, elections like a fancy dinner party where you have an A-list of likely voters. And those are the people the political consultants pay all their attention to. A B-list of voters who are maybe registered but don't vote very much, they get almost no attention. And then all the people who are not registered to vote who get no attention at all. And that is a terrible way to run an election. And many of the non-voters, there is some significant evidence that they are less ideological than the people who would be the first to show up at the polls, uh, which is uh, not surprising. But it doesn't mean that they don't pay a lot of attention once you create a system like this Parties have an interest in connecting with everyone, including those voters, uh, which gets them, among other things, voter information, including propaganda, but propaganda can be information, including information that they really don't get under our current system where they're ignored. Look, another thing is whether who would benefit from universal voting, as you call it. Now, there has been a sort of an assumption that increasing the uh, electoral turnout would automatically favour Democrats. You question that? 
Uh, we do uh, in two ways. Uh, one is not in the book because it was after we finished it, is in Virginia in the governor's uh, election, which got a lot of attention this year because Joe Biden carried the state uh, in 2020, but Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, won in 2021. He won after the Democratic legislature and the Democratic governor had vastly expanded access to the polls. So a Republican won in Virginia, which is a a swing, a Democratic-leaning swing state on an enormous turnout. And a lot of the conservative vote turned out. The, the Democratic vote wasn't bad, but the conservative vote was very high. And all of these efforts to ease access to the ballot helped them come out. Similarly, in 2020, Joe Biden won, but Republicans picked up a number of House seats because of much higher turnout among their voters in certain parts uh, of the country. So we think that it's a mistake to assume that more voters equal perpetual democratic victories. And of course, we've been citing Australia's experience since you adopted this in the 1920s, where you've had extraordinary alternation in power uh, over the years. So conservatives do not need to fear uh, this system. Uh, Ro- Rosalind, I thought you. I thought you had a, yeah, a, a, I was a breath. Jump yes, in. do do jump I, in. I, thank you, Geraldine. I, I think one thing that is important to note is that, you know, I think EJ is right to say that Youngkin's victory shows that high turnout is compatible with conservative victories. But of course, there was a, a lot of um, sort of mobilisation around relatively extreme issues, in, including ag- against COVID restrictions and sort of race sensitive education that might explain that. But I think one thing that from afar at least, you know, the modern Republican Party is split right down the middle between the Trump wing of the party and the more traditional um, wing of the Republican Party. And, and certainly for the, you know, more traditional Republicans who are facing, you know, the hostile takeover of their party, universal voting would be a way of re-enfranchising independents and moderate Republicans. And so I think as we look at the US, it's important to recognise that the Conservatives are no longer a homogenous bloc and that universal voting would be a way of empowering independents and centrists on the conservative side as much as on the progressive side, even if it might might damage the extreme wing um, of the party. And, and I think, you know, to EJ's lovely metaphor about the dinner party, it's not only an elite dinner party, it's a dinner party filled with people with extreme views, people who are intolerant of the other side and don't speak for the ordinary voter. And I think it is worth stressing that in Australia, the mix of preferential voting and compulsory voting is part of what drives um, a pretty solid consensus around core parts of our system, gun control, the welfare state as core parts of Australian democracy. But, but you'd have to say, before we get terribly carried away with ourselves, that there's this, these growing uh, reports and, and, you know, every sort of second week there's somebody come out and say there's lack of trust in the system. I don't know whether that really means they are dissatisfied with what they get or whether they don't trust the system. Uh, I always think it's rather sort of hard to follow. So are we necessarily drawing in people adequately, Rosalind, in our system who really just, you know, it annoys them. They turn up to the just so they don't get a fine, um, but but it aggravates them. Now, what's your take, current take on that, particularly with young people? I think young people are actually pretty keen to get involved, and 
the difference between the US and Australia is people don't go away for college or uni as much and so they're usually registered in their local community and so have a greater connection to sort of their local politics. I think people are reasonably happy with the system but they're disappointed with Canberra and the kind of um, representation they're seeing. I think there's a whole wave of new generation politicians at this upcoming election. There's a desire for change. You know, I direct a, a program at UNSW called the Pathways to Politics for Women program where we've seen a whole new wave of diverse women wanting to be in politics. I think people want more integrity in politics. They want more change on the substance. So I think people actually aren't disenchanted so much with the system as what they're seeing in terms of the actual representation. Yeah, so so mm -hmm. as you say, nothing's perfect. The system's pretty well structured to deliver the goods, but we need leadership and we need people with vision and integrity. And I think there's a sense of um, frustration around that. Yes, I always think it's the word is dissatisfaction, not lack of trust, actually. <laughs> but uh, Correct. Uh, yeah. Um, look, final uh, question to you, EJ. How are you going to go with this argument? You know, who are going to be your supporters? Who will be your detractors? Well, first, I wish Rosalind could join us on our tour because she is making this argument so well. I just want to underscore quickly two points she made. One, uh, there are – I have a Republican consultant friend who – is a very real, genuine conservative. He likes this system for precisely the reason she described, mm. uh, which is that it would make it easier for Republicans to move away from extreme Trumpism. And Kim Beasley is actually quoted in our book saying, the voters brought in by compulsory attendance would not have much to do with those QAnon people, mm. uh, said Kim Beasley. And I think that's true. What we are trying to do here is to make a case nationally, obviously, but we're hoping that states uh, will will debate this, and that it might even be adopted at the local level as an experiment. There are a lot of reforms, including, by the way, um, you know, instant runoffs, preferential voting, that have been Correct. adopted in a few mm. states in the U.S. We are hoping to see if we can get adoption of this um, as a model in some places. But we, and, uh, we're trying just to get this idea in people's heads. People in the United States don't know that for 100 years, Australia has given us ample proof of concept. Uh, and so maybe we can create some political tourism to Australia uh, so that people can see that this doesn't make politics perfect. It just makes it better. Yeah. OK. Well, I, I wish you luck. Uh, thank you. Lovely to chat, to EJ. Oh, it's so good to be with you again. Yes. EJ Dion, whose book, uh, along with Mike Rappaport, is 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting, and it's published here by Text Publishing. And Rosalind Dixon uh, from uh, the Gilbert and Tobin Centre of Public Law at UNSW. Thank you, Rosalind. Thanks, Geraldine.